Hey guys, welcome to the Drone Horizon podcast. I'm Alex. Today I'm joined by Nick McCaffrey. Nick, would you like to introduce yourself? So, hello everybody. My name is Nick McCaffrey, um, aka South Spear Media. Um, I am fortunate enough to live in the Shetland Islands, uh, which is north. It's about the most northerly point of the UK uh, mainland territory. Um, and I've lived in Shetland now for about nine years, um, enjoying um, filming and capturing images of cetaceans, wildlife, landscape, and so on. Um, yeah, that's, that's who I am. That's what I do. Cool. Well, thank you for taking time out of your day uh, or morning to be with us today. Um, as always, we've asked you to send over sort of your three favourite shots. I mean, we spoke briefly before and you said that you've had to choose from millions of shots. So you've managed to narrow it down to three, which I really appreciate. So we'll start with the shot of the orca. So do you want to talk us through that one? Yeah, um, it's kind of like like we said earlier on about trying to pick your favourite child. Um, there's lots of images, lots of stories. Um, that image of the orca uh, was actually captured very recently, around about six weeks ago, five, six weeks ago. Um, we're very lucky in Shetland to get uh, regular visits of um, uh, killer whale orca pods. Um, that particular shot is uh, of a member of a pod um, whose matriarch is number 27, so we call them the 27th pod. Um, they're uh, quite recognisable because there's two large bulls in that pod, number th uh, 34 and number 72. Um, and that image was captured very late on in the day. Um, a lot of what I do when it comes to wildlife is um, is quite challenging. It, it's, you could invest a whole day chasing your tail, basically trying to get ahead and set up a shot and, and either guess it wrong. And, uh, and I think that shot um, is a good example of just what you need to put into for a day. So on that particular day, I had uh, actually traveled to the south end of the island, um, kind of anticipating that this pod was gonna travel south from the last time that it had been sighted. And that seemed to be the direction that they'd been heading in the day before. Um, and just with a bit of time, you get a feel for these sort of things. So uh, I stationed myself very first thing in the morning, just before sunrise um, at a place called Leavenwick, and uh, sat and waited. Um, in that time, actually, there was a humpback offshore and a pod of uh, white-sided, uh, white-beaked dolphins. Um, but uh, it, it just didn't happen. And I was just about to pack up, basically, because orca were the, were the goal, um, when we got a notification that this pod was now to the north of the island um, in a place called Yell, which involves a ferry trip. So um, I got hold of a good friend of mine, Richard Shugsmith, and... Uh, we hot-footed it up to Yell, which uh, is approximately 40-odd mile um, to the wow. north by the time you factor in uh, ferries and, and whatnot as well. And uh, we actually managed to get onto them late on the day. So I've been up since 5 o'clock that morning um, to get all the kit together to get to Leavenwick. We sat there for half seven, sunrise, um, 11 o'clock, the uh, orca was spotted very north of us. So by the time we got the ferries and everything, it was about two o'clock when we actually got to set eyes on them for the first time. And um, that particular shot, we managed to kind of run ahead of them a little bit and, and get set up. And uh, sea conditions were perfect. You'll see in the in the image that it's, it's absolutely flat calm. And they're ideal because you can punch through the water and actually see what the animal's doing. Um, and uh, it's, it's very difficult to get the, the animals behaving in a way that makes it predictable enough to be able to set the shot up. Uh, the wind up here can, can 
um, play havoc with you. It was flat cam, and the sea state was was like glass as well. So you get that mercury kind of look to the water, and um, and yeah, the animal was really docile at the time. They just had a kill. Uh, they'd fed on a seal, and they were just really socialising. So you could you could play with your angles, and and you knew you had a bit of time. You weren't in a bit of a rush, and you could kind of just just calm and and take advantage of that. And um, and that's that's how I got that shot. But that shot was. Uh, by the time we got home, about 14 hours of work. Um, wow. We did do some filming as well, and um, that also makes it difficult because um, you're trying to you're trying to take images for yourself and sort of capture video for other projects at the same time. So you're always trying to steal the right moment for the right thing. Um, we'd filmed the the seal um, being consumed, so I felt that I'd had enough there to switch to doing some images, some stills images instead. Um, but yeah, it, it, a lot of work for what was in effect, maybe about 10 to 15 minutes worth of actual film and probably about 20 to 30 actual stills images in 14 hours. Yeah, it's, it's, I was just going to say, it's very different sort of shooting wildlife to shooting sort of landscapes. A lot of the guys that I have already spoken to, they seem to be sort of wildlife, uh, sorry, uh, landscape photographers. So it tends to be more you know, set up and, and wait for the right weather conditions. But obviously for you, it's it's finding that mixture of the right weather conditions, but also getting the subject where you want. And unfortunately, unlike with humans, you can't tell them to stay exactly where they are to, to get that shot exactly what you want. Um, so obviously you mentioned that you shoot both video and uh, photography as well. So is video more what you do for your commercial work? I know obviously we've touched on that, so we'll speak about that a bit later on, but you sort of more do photography as your personal hobby, but tie it into the commercial work if you can kind of thing. Yeah, I think I think there's lots of things about it. As, as I delve deeper into commercial work, um, I tend to do a lot more video now for commercial aspects of, of work, um, uh, but the stills are, are kind of mine. They become my babies as such. Um, and... Um, and, and that's that's kind of how I've got more interested in photography. I think the other thing as well is the the better I am at photography, um, the better I get at, at recording a video as well. Um, you just get smarter at anticipating what the light's going to do and, and stuff like that um, and how filters are going to affect your shot and so on. So, so working hard to improve as a photographer has definitely had very, very positive knock-on benefits to video. But because I can find myself um, selling the video uh, exclusively uh, to other folk uh, or even with uh, limited use rights and so on, it's no longer mine. Um, so, um, and images work better for self-promotion, I find, on platforms like Instagram. Um, if you look at engagement models and so on, most people will engage with an image versus a video. Videos work, you've got to actually sit through it, whereas a... Um, so I find that as well for like self-promotion images work better. You got contact, got in contact with me because of a stills image ultimately. So um, I've had to kind of learn that about the, the commercial side of things. I got into this because I'm passionate about it, but um, to be successful at it, you have to sort of flirt between what you like doing and what you think uh, your consumers are actually looking for as well. And hopefully those two things roughly mesh um, but you do have to compromise a little bit to try and kind of move forward and, and get recognized by people, I think. Sure. So sort of how do you find, obviously shooting wildlife, that comes with a sort of own challenges of its own. 
how do you find the animals sort of respond to having your drone around? Because obviously drones are quite noisy. Um, and do you tend to find that they get scared by the drone and, and sort of move away? Or is it sort of, are they all right with it? Uh, every animal is different. Every single animal. Um, and I get nervous actually talking to people about it because I would not like to promote um, the reckless use of drones around um, easily intimidated animals. I have worked with a, a number of uh, research institutes, uh, particularly around cetaceans, and um, they're far less invasive than traditional messages using boats and DSLRs and that kind of thing. But um, there are um, a lot of animals that are easily scared by drones. So, for instance, seals. Uh, seals are something that you have to be very, very mindful of. And even if you are, typically when I film is cetaceans and otters and things like that, but you can forget that there's maybe seals on the shore as you fly over the shore to get out to the open water to film the animal, the cetacean. And um, a lot of the cetaceans I film are killer whales. So the last thing you want to do is manipulate a scene where uh, you've actually possibly scared a seal into the water for the killer whale to then consume it. So you have to be really mindful of these things. But um, killer whales themselves are... I, I suspect, uh, and I'm not aware of a body of evidence to support the theory, but I suspect they're so used to being harassed by birds. Often what I'll observe is um, on, a, on a kill where orca have consumed a, a seal, uh, they'll get harassed and bombarded by uh, seabirds, um, seagulls and so on. And that's, that's, a, that's a hazard. So if you are flying in proximity to something like that, you have to be very mindful and anticipate how the birds are going to react if and when they catch the seal, because they're going to compete with one another to get uh, whatever remains of the seal. So um, I would say that they they pretty much, I've, I've, I have captured them glance at the drone and they seem to be aware that it's not a bird, but it certainly doesn't seem to have any bearing on their behavior whatsoever. Um, otters, on the other hand, uh, we've got a number of um, otters that live nearby me. And what I'll do over time actually is habituate them to the drone. So I've got a number of drones, but um, definitely sound uh, and, and um, size profile are important with something like an otter. Um, but so is exposure, just gentle exposure over time. Um, you can start to create the, and when I say over time, I mean weeks potentially. Um, you can start to create the drone in a little bit closer and you'll notice that the otter is not really looking at the drone that much anymore um, and, and it's less of a threat. An otter, when it's feeding, is often very mindful that um, a seabird might come and steal its food. So, so it might not be that they're actually intimidated by it, but you've maybe uh, altered its behaviour because it thinks it's now competing. So um, I would say be very, very careful uh, about flying drones near any animal whatsoever. And it really helps to know your animal too, your subject, how it's going to respond. Um, something like a killer whale, um, drones I think are, are quite benign as far as as far as any any disturbance whatsoever. But things like seals, otters, um, most seabirds are disturbed by them as well. So you have to be very mindful of that. And also just be mindful of how you approach whatever subject you're trying to film because you might actually go over another animal that might be disturbed by it. So, so yeah, I, I could talk to you all day about how animals behave around drones and how you can kind of mitigate that, but uh, it's it's a very complex thing. I'm always very mindful that um, I don't inadvertently promote people to behave recklessly around them because people want to replicate some of the things that you've done and maybe don't realise that actually that, that shot of the otter was possibly five weeks in the making. Um, and things like that. So, so it's it's a really complex sort of field, and it's unique to each animal. I find as well. 
Yeah, definitely. And obviously, you mentioned obviously about the sea birds and seagulls and that kind of thing. That becomes obviously it's a whole nother ball game when you end up flying with those kind of birds around because I've seen many pictures online of drones being taken out just by one sort of by the drone catching the wing of a bird. And obviously, if that then happens and the drone then falls into the ocean, then obviously you're putting other animals at risk, whether that be that it could have you know hit another animal or whether another animal could sort of eat that thinking it's something else so it's when you are shooting wildlife you have to be so much more thoughtful in how you sort of go about things and take so so many more precautions than if you're sort of shooting anything else absolutely i think where where i'm really fortunate is is most of the filming that i do is in shetland Uh, i've lived here for nine years so with all of that videography and imaging and stuff like that comes nine years of experience working on on the same areas, um, the same regions, different times of the year, animals will behave differently. Nesting birds will behave much differently to uh, birds that don't have eggs in the nest. Um, we have seasonal birds that come as well. So you start to learn a little bit about the birds themselves, how they're going to behave at any given point, when certain birds are going to be here. And um, you know, when I reflect on it, there's, there's actually, there's a lot of time spent just sort of honing it. And I suppose it would be different for me if I went to another location where I'm not as familiar. I'd need to take a little bit of time to acclimatise to those animals and that landscape and uh, even silly things like um, updrafts from cliffs and, and stuff like that too. And um, you see spray and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you, you're strategically place yourself so that you're launching in an area where the drone's not going to get battered by sea spray. Um, and, and you just, you do that automatically with nine years of, of experience. But, um, just plan. That's the best thing I can I can put as advice to anybody is get to know your subject, get to know where you're flying from and plan. And always, whenever you're finished, think, what will you do differently next time? How will you improve that? And, and um, it, it comes, eventually you start doing things um, without really thinking you'll fly in an arc around something. And um, it's not obvious to anybody else why you've done that until you see somebody else fly right over the top and all the birds left. And then, uh, becomes pretty obvious quite quickly so yeah definitely i mean obviously it's quite new technology as well so sort of finding how animals react to it and that kind of thing is is something that sort of, as you've mentioned can only be sort of discovered over time um, there's not really sort of any research in how certain animals respond so it's sort of something that you're having to do on your own and and find how as you mentioned obviously different animals in different places will respond differently so it's just sort of as you mentioned just being aware of your surroundings and and not sort of rushing too headfirst into a lot of things and and sort of spending that time will mean that you get the shot that you want in the end hopefully yeah 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 absolutely absolutely cool um so if we go on to your second shot which is the one with the paddle borders in the middle and you've got a lovely sunset it's a really nice composition this one do you want to talk us through this one well that's actually two kayakers and um, i'm actually one of those kayakers so one thing that I've learned about film and wildlife is that you, you need to be versatile so that you can maximize every opportunity that presents itself because you don't know the next time it's going to present itself. So um, I film a lot of otters and one of the best ways I find to film otters with drones, funnily enough, is to use kayaks um, because you can cover a lot of shoreline um, without too much hassle. And um, that particular shot, is just it, it just demonstrates that um, it's possible to launch and land uh, drones from kayaks and um, on that particular day I had my Mavic 2 in my backpack. That's a, a little cluster of islands that, that's very close to where I live and um, I'm very keen on kayaking so um, 
we were coming back from a paddle and uh, the sun was setting in amongst them and we could kind of compose the shot so that the sunset is roughly lined up um, and um, I, uh, I launched the drone from, from the kayak um, roughly in the centre of those aisles flew the drone back, composed the shot and um, I took a landscape shot so it's a, it's a stitch um, which is all pretty straightforward to do in the Mavic um, and I really liked that shot it was um, it was a long day on the kayaks and uh, we got lots of really neat things um, did a lot of exploring uh, and could finish it off with with quite a memorable shot of what was a very memorable day, um, and uh, and brought the drone back in to land uh, on the kayak, and um, and everything came back in one piece, which is which is always good. Um, but yeah, yeah, so it, it's perfectly possible to launch from a kayak as long as the conditions uh, allow, um, and you can get shots like that, which are really good. And, and what's great about it as well is not only can you use the drone to compose your shot, but when you're on a kite, you yourself can move as well and just make sure that it all works. So um, it's one of the beauties of the drone is you can take images of yourself where you can be the subject in your own shot. And um, and uh, that's one of the big reasons why I got into drones is you can do cool things like that. And and uh, you have your own kind of keepsake of what was a very memorable, memorable evening. So Definitely. I mean, when you mentioned about sort of this shot being uh, like a a multiple uh, shot, is this something that you do? You normally take multiple shots and stitch them together, or do you use sort of the panorama features within the drone and let it auto stitch? Uh, I'll do both. Um, you one of the one of the great features of Mavic Two is that you can get it to store all the stitch images, the original stitch images. Um, in a separate file. Um, so sometimes, sometimes the stitching, the auto stitching isn't perfect. You'll notice on the horizon maybe it's a bit staggered or something like that. And you can normally fix that with um, basic software like Image Composite Editor or, or something in Photoshop. So um, nine times out of 10, I would say that the auto stitching function is really good, um, but it's good practice really to just keep the original images anyway. Um, and I think, you need to forensically look through your stitches too, because you'll sometimes miss um, a stitch that on an auto function that you can maybe clean up later on. Um, so if you were selling that to a customer, you want to make sure that you've gone through the, every sort of inch of that image just to make sure that the stitch all works. But the auto the auto stitch feature on the Mavic 2 is, is pretty solid, um, particularly on flat cam days where the drone itself isn't having to kind of compensate a little bit. Um, but it's a great little feature. And then you can always um, just tweak it a little bit in Lightroom, just make sure your exposure is right, and bring out the shadows and so on, because obviously it's, it's multiple settings for multiple images. Um, you can flatten it all out. But nine times out of ten, what you get out of the drone is actually perfectly usable um, and um, looks pretty good, to be honest. Yeah, sure. So sort of obviously taking off from uh, a canoe, how do you find that works with sort of return-to-home features? Have you found... Obviously, you probably don't use this sort of auto return to home, but how much would you trust that in a setting where in an emergency you would have to use the return to home? Um, I suppose it's all relative to how much you've moved. Um, so you can enable smart uh, return to home where um, on GPS enabled devices, the return to home is locked to the control itself uh, or uh, return to home is linked back to the original home point. Um, on something like a canoe, you're not actually moving that far, um, or a kayak or paddleboard. Um, most of the time, what you're doing is you're launching, uh, and your energy is consumed in just flying the drone as opposed to carrying on what you're doing. 
Um, there's a few ways around it. Uh, if you've not moved particularly far and you have, by chance, lost sight of the drone, then it would hit return to home because you'll have a good idea of where the takeoff point was. Um, to be fair, you know, you really shouldn't be losing sight of your craft anyway. So you should always really be able to fly it back um, to wherever you are. Um, and I, I would say that should always be your default setting too. Um, but return to home is good if all is lost and, and perhaps fog setting or something, you'll have a good idea of where it's returning back from. Where it can start getting a little bit complicated is if you're on fast moving craft like boats, uh, you can travel some distance. Um, and ideally speaking, you've enabled, you have a GPS enabled device and your return to home feature is locked to, to your control. Um, but the other thing that you can and should perhaps think to do is continuously reset your home point. Um, and the reason for that is uh, I've done it on a number of times uh, where you've, you've traveled some distance by boat, uh, the drone's been in the air and you've actually been filming the craft. Um, and DJI equipment, for instance, will prompt you to return back to home because it thinks that the, the battery life isn't quite enough or, or you're just now on the brink of being able to return, do the return leg of the flight. Um, so if you don't have a GPS enabled device, I would, I would prompt you uh, when covering distances like that to uh, every now and again reset your home point so that you don't get that prompt. Um, and, and that just kind of, that's a, that's a quick workaround. Um, obviously you can cancel the return to home, but you need to be mindful of that. If you have traveled the distance, at some point your drone is likely to turn around and want to go back to wherever it took off from or where it thinks the home point is. Um, if you don't have a GPS enabled device and you haven't set home to the actual control itself. But um, I would urge against relying on that anyway, because you really want to have eyes on your drone the whole time um, to make sure that if needs be, you can, you can fly it back in. Um, and there's lots of other things as well about launching from craft. Um, the different drones uh, lend themselves better to doing that particular thing. Um, and at takeoff and landing, ideally, if, if um, like the Phantom 4 and the Inspire series, you can switch them to ATI mode. Um, ideally speaking, that's what you do. Um, and you don't, you don't have it. There's lots of reasons about that. But at takeoff, if you're on a moving craft, even if you're just drifting, and it can be surprising even when the boat's stationary how much you've drifted, um, at takeoff, the, your, your drone will want to go back to the takeoff point. Um, so if you're on a boat with a large structure in front of it, your drone might fly into that structure trying to return back to the home point. So by switching to ATI mode, you know that the drone is just going to go up and not do anything unpredictable. Um, the other thing that you can do to mitigate that is if you know what direction the boat's traveling in, you can reasonably anticipate what direction the drone's going to head when it goes to try and take off from the, the original home point. And you can make sure that, that everything's clear. So you can either get to the highest part of the boat um, and take off from there. So you know that if it does do something a bit unpredictable, it's just going to go uh, without hitting anything. Um, or you can station yourself in a place where you know that this you've got clear line of sight and there's nothing that is going to obstruct the drone. The other thing, obviously, is just taking off as soon as you get the home point um, or don't take off at all if you know that you're drifting very, very fast. Um, unless you can get clear of things. So the, there are things that you need to think about. The Mavic series, um, it's it's difficult, if not impossible, to switch to ATI mode. There are some sort of hacks out there, but I would advise against that. Um, 
in the Inspire and the Phantom series, they're great because you can you can just manually switch them to, to ATI mode and you don't have to worry about that. And then you can put them to GPS if you want to take your hands off the controls to do something, you know, that the drone's just going to sit there. Um, but um, working from, from boats is, is, a, is a very challenging field and, and I, would, I would be very, very careful about that. Um, boats, particularly kayaks, uh, paddle boards and so on, they don't move as fast. So you don't have and you don't have structures like aerials and things like that to worry about. Um, so it's it's uh, easier to cut your teeth doing stuff like that. Um, but then you need to be fairly competent at kayaking and paddleboarding because you're also in the water on a kayak and a paddleboard while you're trying to fly a drone. So um, so yeah, it's it's very very challenging, but you can get some very very interesting shots that nobody else or very few other people are doing. Uh, um, and that means that your work stands out a bit better. Um, so, so yeah, it's worth just trying to push your limits a little bit, but um, just think everything through, trying to anticipate what the drone's going to do and how it's going to behave. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, you're talking about boats. That sort of leads nicely onto your third shot, which is the one of the RNLI boat um, in the middle. Um, so do you want to talk us through this one? Were you on the boat uh, when this was coming back in, or was this one that you sort of flew it out to capture the boat coming back in? I was on a, another chase boat at the time, um, and um, I'm actually part of the, the we're local lifeboat crew, so um, everybody knew what was going on, and um, and yeah, that that shot entailed launching from a boat um, and then chasing the RNLI lifeboat um, to get that shot, uh, and that shot is very close to home actually. Um, there's one thing that annoys me about the shot in the wake of the boat. There's a little wiggle towards the end. So I have every intention in summer to uh, try and do that shot again and have kind of a nicely composed straight leading lines and stuff like that. But um, it's it's a very neat shot uh, that that puts our lifeboat uh, in its location, our local hunting grounds, um, and uh, it was a beautiful day. And I think it does uh, it sells Shetland as well. That's a, a fairly typical summer's day. Um, but again, a technically challenging shot. Um, you are launching and landing on a boat, a moving boat, chasing what is a very fast boat as well. Um, but you can see that if you if you if you work at it, you can see what you can deliver, and it, it's it's a perspective that could only have been achieved historically using helicopters, you know. And that shot would have cost an absolute fortune to do, whereas we could, in theory, do that most other days. Actually, um, it's not essential to do a shot like that to launch from from the shore. Uh, from a boat, but uh, on a fast-moving boat like that, you'll very quickly run out of range. You'll you'll exceed the legal limits and so on. So, launching and taking off and and landing on a boat enables you to follow something like that for quite some time and work on your shot and, and try and compose it properly without panicking that you're going to run out of, of range or anything like that. So, um, so it it just opens up what's possible. Um, a technically difficult shot to deliver, but when you've got all that time, um, you can you can get a few runs at it and, and practice. Um, so yeah, I was I was really happy with that shot, and the crew were too. We've actually used that shot um, uh, on the Eighth Lifeboats Facebook page, and and it's it's been circulated quite a bit. It's gone down really well, um, and uh, I'm quite proud of that actually. Um, so, sort of moving on to your backpack and what you take with you in terms of kit. Obviously, you've mentioned that you've got a couple of different drones. So, do you want to talk us through sort of the different drones you have when you choose the different ones to take out? Any drones that you've sort of had previously and then upgraded to? Do you want to sort of run us by what you what you use? Yeah. So, um, 
everybody comes into this from from perhaps two different places. Um, I uh, maybe I'm a dying breed actually, but I, I got into this by building a craft. I, I've always been a recreational uh, remote controlled aircraft flyer, um, and uh, really got into drones um, at quite an early stage, building my own kit and so on. Um, uh, but for me, the the paradigm shift was with the Phantom 3 Pro. Um, that's pretty much when I stopped building drones um, because it delivered 4K 30, uh, gave me around about 20, 25 minutes of flight time. It was reliable. I wasn't having to check connections or solder points or anything like that. Um, batteries were easy to get hold of. Um, and it, it just delivered and it flew every time. Um, give or take the odd little flyaway here and there that you, you, you work around very quickly. It was a solid bit of kit and pretty much eliminated the, the need to, to build any other craft anymore. Um, there was still some, some stuff that you needed big heavy lift drones for, but the Phantom 3 was, was the first drone, I think you could say, was both reliable and reasonably portable as well. Um, so, you know, it lent itself really well to kind of starting with the uh, kind of out there, more adventurous landscape stuff and wildlife. And that, that for me was, was pretty much the, the paradigm shift. Um, I uh, have the Phantom 4 Pro. That, again, was a step on um, the one-inch sensor, um, 60 frames a second. Uh, they, they were all big deals. Um, it was really just a more polished Phantom 3. Um, and then you had collision avoidance for the first time as well, which is quite neat. Um, uh, it, the Phantom 4 Pro wasn't perfect, um, but it was a solid bit of kit. And, and, and um, I still use it quite a bit for... Launching from boats is probably still the best drone out there. I think the legs make it very easy to hand catch and securely hold, but there are downsides to it. You get your props in shot, you'll get the legs in shot as well if you're doing extreme maneuvers. Um, and uh, it's it's relatively big compared to the Mavic series, um, but it's it's a solid bit of kit. Um, and uh, I still think it's the nicest drone to actually fly in terms of camera drones out of the box. Um, I love flying the Phantom 4. Um, it's very responsive. It turns very quickly, um, but you can deliver nice smooth shots as well. And I love how you've got the option to put it to ATI mode, which is which is really good for a lot of the stuff that I do. Um, but I will say that I probably use my uh, Mavic 2 Pro. I had the, the original Mavic and um, great bit of kit, really neat, small, compact, and um, a very good drone to get into this uh, kind of thing. Uh, you can get lots of them on eBay, um, secondhand, um, and uh, they're really, really portable. Um, but it didn't have the one-inch sensor. I think low light, it started to fall apart a little bit. Um, so when the Mavic 2 came out, it was very quick to trade up to that. Um, and um, that's probably my go-to bit of kit. 10-bit um, color, um, D-log. Um, I think the only thing it's missing is 60 frames a second in 4K, um, and the ability to switch into ATI mode would be good for something, for, for a lot of the stuff that I do. But um, I'll carry the Mavic with eight batteries, and I'll actually, I've got the smart controller and the backup controller because, um, well, the other thing that's a bit of a nuisance is with the default controller, it tries to charge your phone or display screen device, and it kills the actual controller's battery, which drives me nuts. So I use, I keep spare controls in the bag because as much as I would say keep your phone or your, your, your display screen, your iPad or whatever, fully charged all the time, um, I find the biggest limiting factor 
to uh, all day filming is actually the controls battery life itself. Um, the smart controller is better for battery life, I find. Um, and for things like kayaking, you've got less cables and it's much easier, quicker to deploy. You can pull it out, there's no faffing about connecting things together and stuff like that. So um, I'll keep the smart controller and the backup control in my bag. Along, generally speaking, with the eight batteries in the Mavic 2. Um, and it's, it's a great bit of kit. It, it does 90% of what you want it to do. Um, but I would love to shoot in 4K60. Um, and I would love to be able to switch to RT mode. Uh, and you always want better quality. You always want bigger sensors and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've got the Inspire 2 uh, with the Zenmuse X5S. Um, and I've used the X7 as well. Um, and it's a great bit of kit. I think it's starting to date a little bit now, the Inspire 2. I know there's rumors about the Inspire 3 coming out. Um, it's, it's pretty much the go-to for the serious work. And to be honest, when you're getting into commercial work, people don't want to see a Mavic 2. They want to see uh, an Inspire or something. They want to see something that nobody else really uses. Um, but in reality, it's, it's quite cumbersome. Uh, a lot of what I do is on foot or, or I have to access by you know, kayak or mountain bike or boats and things like that. And um, it's difficult to package the Inspire um, in a way that's going to keep it safe um, and doesn't pretty much consume the entire deck of a boat. Um, so it's a bit of a nuisance, actually. It's a big old beast. And it's very expensive to work with, too. Um, batteries, roughly speaking, are about 175 a battery, and you need a pair of them. Um, so, you know, you're, you're over £300 per flight for a set of batteries, um, whereas the Mavic, that's, that's two batteries and some change. Um, so, you know, the economics of the Inspire are uh, exponentially greater uh, to use than the economics of, of um, something like the Mavic. But the Inspire is an absolute weapon. Um, it's, it's got a lot more power. You know, you really can compete with the cameras um, and you've got choice. You know, you can, you can put different cameras on it, different lenses. Um, but it's noisy. Uh, it's bigger and more intimidating. It's going to cause more disturbance both to people and animals. Um, so it is compromised in some ways. Um, but if you're going to do professional work, it is something that you need to think about because it is something, whether you're going to use everything that the Inspire does uh, or not, customers do feel uh, a sense of confidence when they see something like the Inspire come out, even if you end up flying the Mavic 2 a lot more. Um but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real, real solid bit of kit, but it's very expensive to work with um, and it's very expensive to crash as well. So you tend to be a little bit more uh, risk averse when you're flying it. And the consequences of an injury or, or harm to anything are, are quite a lot greater with something like the Inspire. When you look at the size of those props and how fast they're spinning, if you hit somebody or something with it, it's it's going to be bad. So you're very mindful of that, um, and you tend to fly it a bit more conservatively. Um, but it's great for chasing things, the, the Inspire and the Phantom. The good thing with the Inspire is you tend not to get your props in shot because of the way it suspends the camera. Um, so the, the, the Phantom is pretty quick. The Phantom is pretty good for chasing stuff, but you will get legs and props in shot, and it's a bit of a nuisance. You don't get that with the with the Inspire, and it's just got that little bit more punch as well. So, um, great bit of kit to fly, but probably not what you want to start off with. Um, I've got the Mavic Mini Two as well. That's just a backup drone, um, and the beauty of the Mavic Mini Two is it's so small that I can carry it plus three batteries in my backpack with my Mavic Mini my Mavic Two. 
Um, that just means if you've got a problem or you run out of anything, you can still get something with a little Mavic Mini. Um, and I went with the Mavic Mini because it shoots in 4K. And it, uh, the data rate's 100 megabits a second, so it's on par with GoPros. Um, so it's it's a very useful bump up from the original Mavic Mini. Um, and I, I thoroughly recommend it as a bit of kit. It's very quiet. Uh, it's very discreet. Um, and it's got its place. And, and I plan to use the Mavic Mini more to film otters and things like that, just to see uh, whether I can improve on some of the film work that I've gotten and lessen the disturbance to, to animals like that. So... Uh, I think I've pretty much got everything DJI has made, more or less. Um, it's solid gear. It works out of the box. Uh, and I'm somebody that used to build stuff as well. So um, the novelty of that wore off very quickly when you just... The other beauty with using DJI kit, and there's lots of good bits of kit out there, but everybody knows what DJI is and what it can deliver. So a lot of the production companies I work with, um, they understand when you pull out the, the Inspire or the Mavic Pro, they know what it can do. Um, and a lot of the format stuff that you get um, will actually explicitly say what what settings they want your Mavic 2 in kind of thing. So, so DJI's got the jump on other manufacturers. Uh, the user experience is probably that little bit more polished than most of the other manufacturers. Um, and production companies understand what your kit can do. So that saves a lot of time and a lot of hassle because you can just ask them what format you want your kit to be in and they'll tell you, you know, you want your contrast set to here and your sharpness set to there. And and um, so, yeah, I, I use DJI kit predominantly, but I have used the GoPro Karma and a few other things. And I just say it's just a little bit more polished and the, the industry understands DJI kit better than anything else. So, so that's why I tend to lean towards it. Yeah, I mean, I think DJI, especially, they're the industry standard for a reason. Um, their kit is very reliable, and even their sort of more beginner entry stuff, such as the the Mini Two, is really, really good value for money. Um, and it's sort of the Mini Two, especially, it's almost in a class of its own in terms of weight and cost. That even the competitors, it, it stands well above them. Uh, I mean, obviously, you've mentioned that you've got quite a lot of drones, which makes me happy because I love drones but um, would you say that the biggest sort of differentiating factor between the Mavic 2 and the Phantom 4 is the Atti mode switch because obviously they're both pretty similar in terms of camera um, and obviously the the Phantom is marketed more as a sort of prosumer drone whereas the the Mavic 2 is more of a consumer drone so what would you say the sort of differences between the two of them? I think I think the line's Blur, I mean, we, we put these arbitrary titles on things like prosumer and consumer and stuff. Um, I would say, funnily enough, some of the, the higher-end production companies I've worked with have asked us to use the Mavic 2 over the Phantom. And the reason for that is um, 10-bit color, which the Phantom doesn't do. Um, so from a post-production point of view, the Mavic's actually the most solid bit of kit because you can grade the colors in better uh, with the video footage that you get. Um, however, the Phantom 4 shoots and it's got a global shutter um, as opposed to an electronic shutter. So for survey and work and so on, the, the Phantom still stands head and shoulders above anything else in that sort of market. Um, but it's it's becoming more of an industrial drone than uh, than something that you'd use for videography. Um, there's there's a few things about the two. Uh, you know, the, the Atti mode on the Phantom is is a is a standout feature, um, but I think it's 
not something that many people would even miss in, in all fairness. Um, but for me, it's, it's, it's an important thing that I'd like to see as an option on, on the Mavic series. Um, having a, a global shutter would be better as well and for some circumstances, um, but that's probably going to bulk up the size of the camera and start to eat into other things. It's arguably more expensive to manufacture one as well. Um, but um, less rolling shutter would be, would be a good thing. Um, people use things like the Mavic for survey work now because they're so portable. You know, you can climb up to the top of a hill uh, and launch it quite easily, whereas the Phantom, to do that and take the batteries that you need to take as well, and roughly speaking, you could carry two Mavic batteries for one Phantom battery. Um, uh, batteries are getting harder to buy now as well. Um, you know, the Mavic's just so much more portable. Uh, they both have one-inch sensors. Um, but yeah, standard features are uh, global shutter on the Phantom um, and 60 frames per second in 4K. Um, but standard feature for the Mavic is that you've got 10-bit color in D-Log um, in .MOV format. So, you know, one's possibly better for TV in that you, your post-editing flexibility is better. You can grade in colors and so on. The footage is probably going to look a little bit better on um, a graded uh, Mavic video clip versus the Phantom video clip. Um, but downside is 4K, 60 frames a second, um, is quite neat. Um, you know, depending on who your market is, some people want 30 frames, 60 frames, some people want 25 frames, 50 frames, but um, 60 frames a second looks great on fast-paced stuff when you can slow it down to half the, particularly wildlife where, you know, things are quite frantic. Um, but uh, they're, both, they're both really good bits of kit, but they both have their differences. And I rather wonder, DJI probably could make the one standout perfect bit of kit. Um, that takes the best of both. Um, and maybe we'll see that in the Mavic 3. Who knows? Yeah. Um, obviously, you mentioned as well that you use the Inspire 2. So is that something that you tend to use for when you just do sort of commercial work? Um, and if so, do you use the two-man op on that? And do you use the are you the drone pilot or do you operate the camera sort of? Which do you prefer to do? Um Yes to all answers. Um, so I do use the Inspire 2 for a lot of commercial work. Um, it's very rare I'll voluntarily take the Inspire out on a hike up a hill just because it's so heavy and cumbersome. Um, and generally speaking, I'll take six batteries, which themselves weigh a bit of a ton, and the control's bigger and heavier as well. Um, but yeah, in commercial work, when you're working from a vehicle or something like that, the Inspire's probably much the go-to um, drone of choice. Um, and yeah, I'll often use a mix of, of dual operator um, and, and single single operator. Um, I am, generally speaking, the pilot at all times in a dual operator capacity. Um, it's good if you're working with uh, higher-end productions where whomever you're working with is very clear what kind of shot they want. Um, so it's actually easier just to hand in the control sometimes and say, well, there you go. Um, the problem you've got with that, though, is that just because somebody's good with a camera doesn't mean they're good with a drone camera because, you know, filming from land is, is completely different from filming from, a, from a, a moving craft kind of thing. So I think a lot of people maybe think it's easy and then you give them the control and, and it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a mishmash. Um, I think if, if you're going to work in a dual operator role, um, definitely get some flight time in with your 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 camera person. 
um, and learn uh, what words to use and learn how the other one is going to work as well. Because how I fly a drone will be different. You might get somebody that's, that's had a lot of experience flying the camera of a drone, but each pilot, as is each driver, is, is very different in their style. So you kind of need a bit of time to make that work because you're kind of dancing together a little bit. You need to be able to anticipate how that person's going to move and, and, and just calibrate to how quickly they, they, they dial everything in. And, and like I say, just work on the words that you use as well so that you're clear when you say this, this is what I'm going to do. Um, particularly with wildlife, when you don't get many chances to do that shot over and over again. Um, so dual operator roles bring with them their own challenges. Um, and the best advice I can give you is before you get to that kind of crunch moment, spend as much time with your, your other operator as you can. And the other thing, something like the Inspire that will disorientate you is, you know, if you're used to flying yourself as, as both the pilot and the camera person, you'll know what orientation the camera is relative to the drone because you're controlling both of those things. And most often than not, if, um, if it's just me, um, I'll fly the drone as if it is the camera. So the, the, I'm very rarely um, panning the camera. Um, I'll use the drone to do that instead. But when you hand over to a dual operator scenario, they will pan the camera. So you need to look at the FPV to just make sure that you know what way the drone is pointing. Um, the FPV camera on the Inspire is a bit, a bit rubbish um, in terms of resolution. So if you're trying to track an animal and you're looking at different animals, the FPV is looking at one member of a pod and the camera's looking at it, you can very quickly get yourself confused. So, so it's risky sometimes um, going with the dual operator role, but there are other really neat things you can do that just make life easy. So, you know, climbing and doing a spiral, it's much easier uh, and much um, more controlled if the dual operator, your second camera operator is controlling that rotation. Um, so th both have the pros and their cons. Um, but, uh, and you, you can deliver so much more in that, um, in that uh, function, that, that setup, if you have a good relationship with the person that you're working with. Um, and um, equally, they have to be prepared every now and again to take their hands off the controls, give you full control, get set back up again, and then hand control the camera back up. That's, you'll find a system that works for you, whatever that may be, but it just takes a little bit of time just to bed that in and get comfortable. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really cool function. Sure. So sort of how did you first get into photography? Did it start with sort of, obviously I know you mentioned that you uh, enjoy sort of flying model airplanes and, and model RC, that kind of thing. So did your interest in photography come from enjoying the, the model stuff and then moving into drones? Or did you start sort of with a DSLR and then discover the sort of unique perspectives that you could get with drone stuff? Because obviously you've not really mentioned that you've take many DSLR pictures. I mean, I don't know whether that's just because you've sort of not mentioned it or whether do you just not take DSLR stuff? No, I do. I do. Um, I, I sort of, there were two concurrent paths that I was on. Um, so I've always been into adventure sports. I've always been a keen mountain biker, downhill mountain biking, kayaking and so on. Um, and have always been into photography for those reasons. Um, it was always difficult to take action cameras with you because they were quite big and bulky at the time. But, you know, you were always looking to try and mount a camera onto whatever you were using at that time to give a, a sense of how fast you were traveling and just give people a feel, a real-time feel for that. Um, and my other interest has always been flying remote-controlled aircraft um, and building them and so on. Um, and um, 
I remember when uh, the four cam came out and it was a kind of bullet camera with a cable that went to a, a DVR that you put in your backpack and you now had this cable that you had to remember was there while the camera was mounted to your handlebars and I don't know how many cables I snapped and um, you know the DVR stopped recording in the back because it either ran out of battery or disconnected and it was but it gave you a sense of what was possible and then GoPro came along um, with their Hero series um, and um you now had a, a waterproof unit that could take a bit of a tumble that was self-contained. Um, and then because the cameras got smaller, you could mount them to your remote control craft as well. And and this was quite cool. And you could film your plane flying around now and it's a perspective that you never really seen before. And then um, people started mounting those cameras to drones. And, and I moved over from fixed wing craft onto rotary craft drones. And you could now actually have a stationary shot of the mountain bike going underneath. Um, so it just sort of morphed, really. The two things in, in tandem sort of gelled together. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I used to do and, and still do uh, is around adventure, um, filming the kind of things that I get up to. Um, and uh, as drones became more portable, as the cameras got smaller, uh, they lent themselves better to, to taking out. But... Um, I have got much more into my DSLR stuff now um, to kind of hone my craft. So I always used to have portable cameras um, and, and they were good, uh, but um, I used a Panasonic G9 just now because a lot of what I do is video. The G9 lends itself really well to video, but it's also micro four thirds. So it's small and it's compact. So I can get my G9 in my backpack the lenses are also quite small relative to, to the focal ranges and so on. Um, and the, the Micro Four Thirds system is compatible with the Inspire lenses too. So uh, from a, a business perspective, I, I just have to buy one lens that works across two cameras. Um, so I do use uh, a DSLR. Um, I use the Panasonic G9 because that makes a lot of sense for me and it's portable. Um, and for wildlife, uh, the G9 has got a fantastic Lumix lens um, it's a 100 to 400 mil lens, which gives you a, a 35 mil equivalent of 200 to 800 mil uh, on your full frame kit. So the, the, the lens is, is really portable, but it gives me a lot of zoom. Um, so it, it's a fantastic bit of kit. Um, and what's really good about stills photography is I've got all the time in the world to play with things. I don't have to worry about battery life counting down or where I am relative to the drone. Um, so it's it's getting back into stills photography has definitely made me better at uh, capturing images um, with drones. Um, but it's definitely the drones. The drones are the priority and everything else is to try and make that better. Um, but I, I really enjoy stills photography um, because it's just that little bit less frantic. Um, and uh, especially with the 100 to 400 mil uh, I can capture behaviours from the ground without causing too much disturbance. Um, and it's it's really neat. I really enjoy it. Um, and um, it's just it's just nice to do something a little bit different. And all of those skills that I hone doing that transfer back into the drones. Um, so it's it's made me better as a, as a more rounded uh, videographer, photographer. So how did that sort of lead into your commercial work then? Obviously, we've briefly touched on the fact that you've worked for sort of different companies and that kind of thing. Was it a case of you getting in contact with them or did your hobby sort of, 
you you spent time building up your hobby sort of portfolio and then that became more available and people saw that and sort of decided to get in contact with you i think it's definitely the latter um I um, I have a YouTube profile and um, I just had some kind of show reels on it, basically stuff that I thought was quite cool. Um, and um, locally, uh, people get to know you um, and get to know what you're interested in and, and try and help you. But you you there's a there's a few very skilled people on this island, but you become a kind of group of go to people. Um, but you know, my first big breakthrough really was. Um, I uh, was just doing what I normally did and went to go film uh, a pilot whale that was um, that was behaving quite oddly in in a, a little kind of bowl, which is a bit like a Norwegian fjord up here. Um, and uh, I went along to go and see what this pilot whale was doing and see if I could help or, or just get an idea of what was going on. Um, and I bumped into, uh, well, as I was packing up my gear, another car pulled up next to me. And they opened the boot of the car and they pulled up some Sony FS7s and just some big, big kit. And, and I wondered if they were new. So I asked the chap, you know, are you, what are you guys doing here? And um, they had said that they were actually up filming a series uh, for the emergency services in Shetland. Um, and they thought they'd come and have a look at this this pilot well. And uh, I, um, I got to talking to them because I happened to be on the lifeboat crew as well and said, well, you know, are you working with the lifeboat? And they said they were at the time. And uh, I said, well, I could put you in touch with our local crew. And as it happened, um, a week on from that date, we were doing an exercise with the helicopter. And I thought, this is going to look fantastic with these guys out filming us working with the Coast Guard helicopter. And um, so we changed numbers and so on. And um, later on in the week, we got to talking to the guys. And um, the one of the guys said, do you know the chap that runs the, that has the YouTube page? Um and has a showreel called This is Shetland. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, it's me. And uh, the, the, the team said, well, we'd be really keen to speak to you about your archive and so on. Um, and, and it was then that got me encouraged into, into doing um, more commercial work because they wanted to use that footage uh, as part of their production called Island Medics. Um, and, and they basically helped fund my um, uh, permission for commercial uh work so um i got my pfco pretty much off the back of of island medics pretty much paying me for that um, and that enabled me then to provide them with archive footage that they could use and then um i have worked with a lot of that crew since then because some of them are freelance and they go off to work with other production companies and if there's a production in shetland that needs some sort of landscape footage they're very quick to kind of promote who i am and what i do um, but it was really just kind of over time building that relationship up with people. Um, and I think as well, just doing what you like doing. So I enjoy filming cetaceans and landscape stuff. And, and um, that lent itself really well for what these guys were looking for. It was exactly what they were after. Um, so, so yeah, I was really lucky in that people approached me. Um, but it was because of perhaps of all the hard work that I'd put in. Um, in the past but I did it because I loved it not because I was looking for somebody to notice me um, and I think that's key if you were doing it uh, in a kind of contrived way it, it probably wouldn't be very natural and you'd probably be jumping between formats and stuff so if I can give anybody any advice it's find what you like doing and and be the best at it that you can be and I can more or less guarantee you 
that that will get somebody's attention at some point. But you can't be doorstepping as well. Um, I do, if I'm aware of a production um, that's um, looking at something like Shetland, I will make contact with them. But um, I don't think there's a linear path in nowadays. I think building up your profile on things like Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, they're they're never going to cause they're never going to uh, cause any harm. Um, emailing any production companies out there is also a really good move. Um, letting them know who you are and, and what you do. But what they want to see is is a is a kind of history. They want to see some of your work. So the best thing you can do is just stick at it, so that you know you have a portfolio of some sort that people can look at and get a feel for what you're all about, what you're good at as well. They want to see somebody with experience um, and enthusiasm. Um, so, so um, yeah, just put the work in and, and people will find you um, is, is what I think, really. And try and do things differently too. Try and do things that stand out um, because I think drone work is becoming quite ubiquitous. We've seen the same shots all the time, so... Things that really stand out, like that humpback whale shot. I just happened to find a humpback whale that was sleeping. Um, but, you know, I was lucky on the day, but I was lucky because I put hours upon hours upon hours into trying to capture images of humpback whales. Um, so it was luck without question, but it was also the fruits of a lot of labour too. Um, and, you know, it got noticed by somebody and, and I'm chuffed about that. So Yeah. Well, that sort of brings us nicely into the shot that sort of first made me aware of, of your profile and the reason that I got in touch with you. Um, you were lucky enough to have a shot that has been featured on or shortlisted for the British Photography Awards in the drone category, um, which, as you mentioned, is a, is a sleeping humpback whale. Um, so do you want to talk us through just sort of briefly how this shot came to fruition? And obviously, I know you said that you, you came across it, but... I know in the description you said that you were out sort of looking for a humpback whale. So do you want to just sort of touch on that quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Shetland is, we've got 25,000 people here. Um, and there is a, a kind of group of people that are really quite enthusiastic about things like cetaceans and landscape and so on. And we've got um, really, really interesting sites like um, the Shetland Orca sites Facebook page and Shetland on camera. Um, and you'll see the same people popping up on these things. So, um, this humpback whale uh, was local to me and we have uh, a salmon farm nearby as well and I've got some friends that work for the salmon industry um, and they were very quick to notify me uh, that there was this humpback whale uh, nearby where I live in Aith in Shetland um, so they gave me the heads up that this animal was around um, and I have a boat but my boat wasn't working so I phoned my mate Paul um, and he gave me his boat which is awful kind of him and uh, and off we went looking for this humpback whale on the 19th of March, I think it was last last year. Oh, sorry, this year, actually. It was 19th of March this year. It was just before lockdown. Um, so we went off looking for this humpback whale. And it, it's actually a relatively small stretch of water. It's an inlet from, from the sea. Um, but it was impossible to find this guy. It, you know, it's a 25-ton animal. And it was really, really difficult to find. But... Um, managed to get eyes on something in the water uh, near a little island by uh, where I stay called Muckle Row. And um, we thought we'd, we'd just bring the boat in as close as we did. And then I launched the drone instead, just, just to double check what it was. Um, and as I got over the top, I could see that it was a, a motionless humpback whale. And it was just every now and again, casually coming up to breathe. 
and then coming back down again. So that's why it was so difficult to spot because normally what you'll see is this big mushroom blow and you'll see the arching back. And, and you know, even in a fairly, fairly rough sea, a humpback whale is quite easy to spot. But this guy was just like like a log breaking the surface and then coming back down again. And um, yeah, it gave me the chance to launch from the boat and um, and, and and get that that particular shot. Um, it's really difficult with humpback whales, um, particularly in the water. Um, the pectoral fins are always white, or, or there's patches at least of white. You'll notice some humpback whales have got quite dark pectoral fins. But there's always white on them, and getting the exposure rig for that's really difficult because their, their skin's quite dark and grey. So, um, you know, I had a bit of time to muck around with exposure settings, but that was about the best that I could get was was that particular shot without losing the the, the detail of the actual whale's body, but equally not having the pectoral fins blow out the image as well. So, uh, it was quite good to have a moment with with a static whale like that. that most often than not, when I'm filming them, they're moving uh, or they're feeding. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I was really, really lucky. And um, you're always very mindful when you're um, working with cetaceans from a boat that you you maintain, you know, appropriate distances. You're not causing any disturbance. You're certainly not chasing them or anything. But that's the beauty with the drone is um, you don't have to be close to an animal like that to get a cracking shot. And you don't pretty much don't cause any disturbance whatsoever to the animal too. So, um, you know... I could come home with this fantastic image that I'm incredibly proud of. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I can't tell you how chuffed I am to be shortlisted in my category as well. Um, that's really all I was ever hoping for was, was just to have your work tested against other people. Um, and, uh, and it was good enough to be shortlisted. So, so um, yeah, I'm really, really chuffed. And it was a, it was an amazing day and it was just before lockdown kicked off as well. So, it was kind of one of the last days I had before before we were in this weird COVID bubble. Um, so I, I remember the day quite fondly, uh, and it was it was uh, quite a unique moment. And um, that image means quite a lot to me in lots of different ways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's obviously you mentioned about sort of having the really sort of high contrast between the rest of the body and the fins. Is that the reason that you opted to go for this shot in black and white? Because sort of I would imagine that a shot like this would have looked probably quite lovely in colour as well but I'm just interested to see why you opted to go for this in black and white rather than in colour um, on my on my Instagram account you, you'll actually see a colour version of it um, I think what's interesting with humpback whales is uh, when you go black and white and you bump the contrast up you start to see the scars and the story that's written on, on the animal's body um, and you can see um I just think it works better for the image. Humpback whales aren't particularly pretty animals as such, but uh, when you go black and white and bump the contrast up, you bring out all those little nicks and cuts. And, and I just think if you can read the animal's story um, just that little bit better than in colour. Um, some people have actually asked me for the colour version of it. They clearly prefer that. But for me, um, something like that. That animal actually, there's a really interesting story about that Um a good friend of mine, Kim Sawicki, um, she's a, a research fellow in the States and um, she's particularly interested in entanglements. So that's when animals become entangled in, in fishing gear, rope and rubbish out there. Um, and that particular animal, she could see from, from the marks on its tail that it's been entangled at some point. There's um, uh, symmetrical scarring on both edges of its tail fluke. 
um, that you know when you when you work with that, you can you can bring out that detail. And um, again, there's a story there. That animal has clearly been entangled at some point and is broken free and has lived to fight another day. For me, as a bit of a geek when it comes to these kind of things, I, I like the black and white because because it is a bit like reading a book when you look at that animal's body. Um, but the colour's fantastic. The colour the colour's really neat. But um, but I, I want to kind of get a feel for where that animal's been and, and what stories it's got to tell. And, and um, that's why I went with black and white with that. But there are some people that prefer the colour and, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, so, you know, on my Instagram page, you've got both versions of it, basically. I think definitely for an animal as old as probably this humpback whale, it, it works, as you say, now that you explain obviously why you've done it and you can really see all the scars and stuff on it. And it, it, makes you appreciate it and it makes it stand out from just any other photograph because rather than it just being a humpback whale if you would see another picture of this whale you would be able to tell that it sort of pinpoints it it's, it's almost like you can see the fingerprint of the whale rather than it just being a generic whale um which obviously is probably what makes this one stand out and was probably why it was shortlisted i mean it is a fantastic shot and it's obviously by the sounds of it, it was years of sort of build up and sort of honing your craft almost to to get this shot, and uh, it's very well deserved to be up there. So best of luck with that one. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, so obviously we've been chatting for quite a while now. So do you want to sort of finish off with any advice? Obviously we've touched on little bits of advice as we've sort of gone through, but do you want to sort of any final sort of advice for guys that are just starting out? Um. So, you know, working with drones, there's just there's so much you can do with a drone. Um, and really, the, the only limit when it comes to drones is, is your imagination, ultimately. Um, you always want to look at what you do. Try not to get uh, stuck in a rut. Try and work with different subjects. Uh, what's worked really well for me is to work with other people that direct you a little bit. Um, because you... I found at the very beginning when I started to get into commercial work, I, I kind of had like set moves, set maneuvers. Um, but when you start working with other people, they challenge you to do things that are a little bit different or they make you see things from a slightly different angle. Um, and that's definitely working with other people has massively improved uh, my skill set and, um, and the work that I produce. Um, and it keeps you from getting in that rut. Working with different subjects uh, equally um, is, a, is a really... I, I don't tend to do a lot of urban landscape stuff, but I would like to. Um, it's, it's always quite neat to work with geometry and leading lines and stuff like that. Um, but equally, I'm sure there's lots of people that work with urban landscapes that would like to work with wildlife. So, you know, don't ever think that you've gone down the wrong path because, you know, if you become an expert in that field, that in itself is 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 valuable because somebody will be looking for you with that skill set. Um, I think if you you know if you're whatever field that you end up becoming particularly interested in, um, think about it before you do it. Um, for me, uh, filming a lot of wildlife um, or trying to capture rare moments out there in the wild, um, you can get you can get caught up in the fluster and the panic, and you can do stupid things like not put a propeller on right or you know launch without a memory card or all that kind of stuff. So before I leave every day. You know, I make sure my batteries are charged. I make sure I've got a memory card in the drone that's clean. And I make sure I've got other memory cards as well. So, you know, you get into the habit of swapping memory cards in case you lose the drone. At least you've got the footage. 
Um, check your props, you know, be be quite pedantic with your gear. Make sure that everything's working. It wouldn't be the first time I've checked a prop and realised there's a little bit of a split, especially in the Mavic 2's props. They're quite soft plastic and they, they can't tear. Um, you might land on grass or something like that, not even realise that you've damaged the prop. So feel the leading edges of things, you know. The last thing you want is an equipment failure right at that moment when you're looking for something to happen. So, you know, um, practice, 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 even just go out the back garden, you know, providing that's legal and safe and so on, and just get some flight time and just go on through manoeuvres. It wouldn't be the first time I found like a pole or a rock and just practice doing orbits around it, both clockwise and counterclockwise, because you can you can get really comfortable doing a clockwise rotation and not a counterclockwise and somebody asks you to do it the other way and all of a sudden this is a big deal. So, you know, you'll never do any harm just flying the drone, just any minute of flight time is is time well well spent um and um yeah play with your camera just get get the feel with it and definitely think about getting a stills camera just as it doesn't have to be a dslr it could be anything even play with the settings on your phone but but learn the relationship between iso and, and frame rates and shutter times um and and what they can do for you um think about filming in manual um more than anything, it just means that you're not going to get uh, sudden jumps in, in color profiles or sudden jumps in ISO or whatever it is. It can it can blow your shot. The auto functions on all your drones are great and they're really, really good. Um, but when you when you switch to manual, uh, you you definitely step up another level. Uh, you definitely do. But it takes a little bit of time to build up the knowledge that you need to work around uh, some of the nuances of working in manual, you know, dropping your your aperture down so that you're you're properly exposing things and and stuff like that. So again, it just comes with time. Be patient. Hey guys, so unfortunately, the last section of our chat with Nick uh, got cut short due to an internet issue. Um, you can find his work uh, on Instagram at South Spear Media. That's S O U T H S P E A R M E D I A. Um, if you want to give him a follow, um, we've had a really good chat today. Um, so unfortunately, the last five minutes of the chat got cut short, but that's be that be the way with Zoom, unfortunately. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, all the best. Mm-hmm.